in all of life, for me at least, uh, as I've tried to reflect on what do I need to know and what's uh, kind of important and what's kind of on the, the periphery, the four questions that I've told my students that I think that they always go back to, one, is there a God? And if you answer yes, then there has to be some consideration of the question, then what is this God like? Uh, does, it's not enough to say there's a God. Okay, is this, is this God predictable? Is this God reliable? Is this God a maniac? Is this God trustworthy? <clears throat> uh, all of those kinds of things. In fact, I've probably told you that sometimes when I talk to people and ask them if they would put their trust in God, I'll say, well, let's talk first about the kind of God you know because it may be very difficult for you to put the trust in a God that you've got all wound up in your head. Then the third question we'll deal with starting after we get through with this is, if that's true, that this is what this God is like, then what does this God require of me? What does this God require of me? Is there any, any requirement? Is there anything related to this relationship? Is there anything related? Now, these aren't on your handout. I'm, I'm just reviewing them for you. Uh, so is, is there, uh, what is it that this God uh, requires of me? And then finally, and this is, this is the other one, yeah, this, and then finally, if you will, uh, what can I expect from this God? What, what can I expect? What, what, what can I believe that God will either do or not do in my life? Or how engaged or how related uh, in my life is he? Uh, or this God? What, what can I expect? And I've already said to you before that, that uh, uh, I think that there's a lot of people whose lives in their faith are disrupted uh, because they've been told they can expect certain things from God. One, they haven't experienced. And number two, as they study the Bible, they think, well, that's not really true. I can't really expect that. So that, that's where we're headed. That's, that's where we're moving. And I'm, I'm doing my best to get there. So on this one, we uh, ask the question, what is this God like? <clears throat> that's question two. <clears throat> what is this God like? And uh, I, I, the quote here by, by uh, William Temple for me, is one that actually really started my own journey back in the 80s um, when I had been a pastor of a church and was really battling uh, in my own life as to whether or not I could trust this God or whether I could uh, uh, really give my life uh, in obedience to this God. This is the quote that Temple said, that if your conception of God is radically false, then the more devout or serious, that's what the word means, devout, serious or devoted or religious or, you know, dialed in, uh, the worse it will be for you. Uh, it's, it's worse for a really religious, a really devout, a really serious person if their view of God is, is off. Uh, you're opening your soul to be molded by something base. And then this is the one when Temple said this. I, I just kind of sat down in my chair and went, okay, I got to think about this. You had much better be an atheist because you're actually relating to something that doesn't exist or someone that doesn't exist. It's a phantom. It's a figment of one's imagination. And so we're, we're, we're looking at this uh, under that idea to say, is there some value? Is there some importance in us? Perhaps, if you will, uh, 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 considering have we formed, have we had our idea of God formed right? I told you this, I think, but I remember talking to a guy in Houston years ago, um, and uh, I, I saw him in a hospital. I just got to talk to him, and I said, uh, he, he said something to me, and he just said, well, I don't believe in God. And I really believe the Holy Spirit gave me it, because I, I don't think like this, you know. Uh, I, I would go, oh, yeah? No, not really. Uh, I, I just said this. I said, really, that's interesting. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. For 20 minutes, he talked about a God he could never please, who he never could measure up to, who he was scared to death of, who he believed he had committed the unpardonable sin. Now, that's a lot of religious stuff for a guy who doesn't believe in God, right? <laughs> that's a lot of religious stuff. But what I determined as I talked to this guy is that if my view of God is that painful, if it's that painful, I can never measure up, never do enough, I've done something where he'll never forgive me ever again, it's easier to believe that God doesn't exist than to deal with that. It's easier. Just, just say, well, he doesn't exist. The fact of the matter was, he did believe in God, and it was down deep. And for 20 minutes, we discussed that matter. And I talked to him about what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was. And after about 15 minutes, he was about 26 years old. He was in the hospital for a knee replacement. It wasn't like something real serious, you know. I guess unless you've had a knee replacement. 
said the guy who's never had a knee replacement. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, like he's not going to die, right? You know, like he's not going to die. He may feel like he's dying, but he's not going to die. Uh, and, and after about 15 minutes of that, tears just start streaming down his face. And uh, all of that was because he had formed or had formed in him an incorrect view of God. He was very serious about it. And because of that, um, uh, he, 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 it, it began to form and malform his soul. And uh, so I, I, to me, again, this uh, is critical. Now, now I want to look at today, <clears throat> we've talked about three. Uh, one is a God who is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. Every person <clears throat> or every, every idea about God has got to go through the grid of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd ask some of you, if you wanted to, to uh, on Socrates. We're not going to do that today because i got some questions here <clears throat> that I want to respond to. Uh, and you were able to do them anonymously, and that's good. I'm just tracking them, uh, trying to find out the IP address, but we'll get that later. No. <laughs> Uh, somebody said that when I said that, that what I'm saying is the Old Testament isn't important. Forget it. I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus is the final arbitrator. There's a big term or a big idea <clears throat> called salvation history. Salvation history. It's the German word, Heilsgeschichte, if you want to tell somebody. I, I don't know why you would, but you know. I had to pay for my education, okay? So. <clears throat> it's the idea of salvation history, and it's the notion that God is progressively revealing himself to people over time. I mean, Abraham, when he first comes out of Ur of Chaldea, is you know, worshiping the crocodile god <laughs> and throwing his kids to it. Uh, and and you know, he understands. This is the way God is. You appease him. You sacrifice. God doesn't go to Abraham and say, now if your enemy strikes you, you know, turn the other cheek. He's, he's, he's bringing him forward. By the way, it's a fascinating thought here. Just, I don't have time for this, but Abraham is such a, a, a member of his culture. It might be, you know, when God tells him to sacrifice Isaac, he doesn't blink. Why? That's his language. You sacrifice children to the gods. That's his, that's his language. That's his culture. He doesn't blink. Some have suggested that what God is attempting to do when he rescues Isaac from Abraham is to say, I'm going to tell you my name, Abraham. My name, I'm the God who provides. You don't have to provide a sacrifice. I'm Jehovah Jireh. That was the name. That, that, that's, pro, you know, so question here about what's going on in that story. This, 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 some rabbis say this is when Abraham lost his mind. No, he didn't. He was operating out of the culture in which he lived. That was perfectly normal. The gods required human sacrifice, and you provided it. Never blinks. Just goes, thinks, well, this God's the same way. Gets up there, and God says, no, I'm the God who provides. You don't have to provide a sacrifice. I'm Jehovah Jireh. So salvation history is the idea that God is revealing himself progressively, not because he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to help people figure it out. So when we get to Jesus, we've got the final piece. All I'm saying is this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. There's truth there, but it's concealed. It's hard to see. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Whatever we saw back there. So I'm not saying we don't read the Old Testament and don't value it. I'm simply saying in terms of salvation history, we understand that Jesus is the final word, the final understanding. And this is the anything we understand about God's got to go through this grid. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that. So I, I just want to respond to a couple of those questions. And, and, and uh, we're going to go. I've got another one here. I'm gonna, I'm, I've embedded in the lesson. So we'll keep moving. So the idea here that we're working with is this view of God. So I've suggested, so Jesus, or God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, a God who has your best interest at heart. A God who has your best interest at heart. The, the image I wanted to leave with you, <clears throat> that he, he, he lo God loves us and he wants us to obey him because he doesn't want us to do what? Remember that picture? Don't touch the hot stove. Yeah. 
Okay, the idea here is God has your best interest at heart, and he does not want us sinning or rebelling because he knows don't touch the hot stove. Because when you touch a hot stove, what happens? You get burned. Yeah. You get burned. Now, somebody ask a question about that. I'm going to embed that as we move along. But this idea that God has your best interest at heart, I've said before, I don't think you can obey God when it gets tough if you don't believe he genuinely has your best interest at heart. If you just think he's up to just pushing you around or moving you around, you're going to have a very difficult time obeying him. Unless you believe, like Deuteronomy 5, 28, 33, and 6, 3 says, do this that it may go well with you. So that's the second one. God has your best interest heart. Number three, <clears throat> we talked about last week, is a God of holy love. A God of holy love. And the distinguishing feature of holy love is it is a love that makes distinctions. Yeah, makes distinctions. God makes a distinction between what is good for you and what is bad for you. He's not lying down on that and just say, well, you know, drinking Drano is the same thing as drinking iced tea, you know. No, <clears throat> they're different, right? I'm hoping you, you know that, right? <laughs> a couple people are going, really? No, no. <laughs> that, that a God of holy love is a God who makes distinctions. He's, this is the same love a parent has for a child. They're not going to lie down and just roll over when a kid wants ice cream for breakfast or wants to do something that's destructive. So those are, and you can listen to those. Now, the, 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 the suggested, those are, I'm behind today. Here we go. Those are the suggested correct views. I told you those, those are those four or those three. And the reason we want to have our views correct is because of this. In 2 Peter, we have this verse. Grace and peace are multiplied to us. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That, that grace and peace is multiplied. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That the more we get to know God accurately, the more we get to understand Him and know Him, the more we begin to experience God's grace and peace. Uh, Hannah Whittall Smith in her great little book, if you haven't read it before, called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, says this, nothing will put your heart at ease but a correct understanding of the nature of God. Nothing. Circumstance won't put your heart at ease if you think this God is behind you, ready to whack you, nothing will put your heart at ease than a correct understanding of the nature of God, that you can trust him, you can rely upon him. And so grace and peace. I, I gave you this quote last week if you want to write it down because I think it gets at this is why, again, we're going at these correct views. This is, this is why grace and peace. Number two, this other statement or this other idea comes out of 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19. It says, we love because we're good people. Right? Yeah. We love because he first loved us. Right. So we're able to love because we know he first loved us. Here's the, the thought behind that. The thought behind 1 John 4.19. You will never have more passion for God than you know that he has for you. you. You will never have more passion for God than you know he has for you. Why? Because we love, that's passion. Why? Because he first loved us. And so getting this correct or getting this in our minds and understood correctly seems to me to be the key to understanding. I, if people are having trouble loving God, my default, I, mean, I can work around it, but my default setting is to say, what is it you don't understand about God's love for you? See, I don't think we start with loving God. We start with knowing that he loved us first. That's how it works. That's the sequence, if you will. And, and so when people are having trouble loving God or think, you know, having trouble obeying or having trouble loving, I'm saying, well, tell me about how you're, what's your understanding of God's love for you. I mean, in reality, I'm not talking about in your head. I'm talking about down here in the splankna. That's a good Greek word for guts. If you don't want to use guts, just splankna. I can feel it down in my splankna, and they won't know what you're talking about, and you can go on. That's right. That's right. You got some splankna, brother. That's what they say. Yeah. But, but this idea that you'll never have more passion for God... And you know what it has for you. So here's the fourth one. Here's the one we're going on the fourth one. 
A God who's consistent with the unique revelation of God that Jesus reveals. A God who is consistent with the unique revelation. You know, I think about this, that I'm going I'm to try to assert and, and, and show you that, that there's, there's something unique that Jesus reveals here. I, I was thinking about people who are unique or, or, or do something. I was uh, watching the World Series, like maybe some of y'all are, and waiting for the Astros to, to break my heart again. You know, it's just a matter of time. Uh, they're cursed. Ever since they've fired Tal Smith in 1981, they're, they're, we're just, I know, it's a curse. Uh, but I was talking to Becky about uh, Jason Verlander, who's a, one of our pitchers. I'm, they're not, I'm not coach, on the Astros, like my pitcher. He makes uh, $34 million a year, and he won like 19 games. He came from Detroit, so, so I know, I know uh, Mr. Gorney's a little upset about that. But you know why you're making all that money? Uh, in 1969, Kurt Flood started the thing called free agency. You, I don't know if you know it, but, but baseball teams and, and owners had a reserve clause that you couldn't just go to another team when your contract ran. After you ended your contract, you had to stay another year before they let you go. And, and, and I, I agree with Jerry Seinfeld. We don't, we, don't, uh, we, don't, we don't root for teams anymore. We root for people's names on the back of the jersey. You know, this guy last year we hated. Now he's on our team and we love him. <laughs> but, but you think about that. That's a pretty that's a unique thing that he did. Do you know, uh, I was thinking some other people did some unique things. I didn't know this guy, uh, Dr. Martin Cooper. You ever heard of him? Not, not from the Cooper Clinic. Not, not down, down in Houston, uh, Dallas. But Dr. Martin Cooper... You know what the unique thing he did? He's the first person credited with inventing the cell phone in April of 1973. Dr. Martin Cooper. First guy. First guy. Unique. I mean, that, you know, we're, we're thankful. Aren't we got those in our pocket right now? You know, Steve Jobs, pretty unique uh, on several levels. But uh, uh, his idea was, I want a, per, a personal computer for every person. When I think about unique, I, I think about Martin Luther King who gave voice to the need, I love this statement. I, if, he, he, I, I teach my students this or use this speech. His speech, uh, I Have a Dream, is, one of the, is probably the greatest speech in the history of the world besides Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. When he said this, Martin Luther King was unique that he gave voice to, to the need to cash the check that the Constitution had written that all men are created equal. Man, I'm telling you, what, uh, that unique idea, if you ever, you've got to go listen to that speech again. But he gave voice to the need to cash the check. Now, there's much to be done, we know, and this, today we're even discussing these matters. But Martin Luther King's unique contribution. Finally, Bill Hybels, I was, I was thinking of him. Uh, in 1971, he started a youth ministry in Chicago with a bunch of kids and Hybels did the only thing he needed to do because his dad owned a large produce company. They sold tomatoes door to door to fund the church. Amazing when you go back and look at the history. Hybels now, after all of those years, has a church attendance at their church of over 24,000 people a Sunday. There are over 600 sites that go to the leadership summit every year and over 400 thousand people are trained every year in leadership by a bunch of guys who sold some tomatoes. <laughs> Those unique contributions. So I want to talk about the unique contribution that Jesus made in terms of God under this. Religions and their view of God. Religions. I'm just going to give you a few, few comments here. In, uh, in, in, and uh, you know, I'll kind of play my hand here. That the unique contribution that Jesus made was that he revealed God as a father. That's unique. I'll, I'll, I'll show you that here in a moment. But that Jesus revealed God as a father. You see, in Judaism, there is no evidence that anyone in rabbinical literature or practice ever addressed God as father. No evidence. I've even scoured the Old Testament and looked for that word father. And the word father is never used in terms of individuals. In terms of God, only a couple of days. He said, I, I was your father. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. But the idea of God as father is very remote in the Old Testament, almost absent. Uh, they're afraid to use his name. 
uh, Yahweh. They won't pronounce it. They will uh, call him Hashem, the name. That's what they just, they refer to him. Hashem, that's the name. And this idea of God as father is mostly absent in the Old Testament. It just isn't part of their, their understanding. Um, I am, all the El derivatives, El Shaddai, El Rohi, El Shema, El Diskindu, all of those derivatives when they talk about God. It's fascinating to me, I, I, I'll do this here, I, I think I've shown this before, but, but in terms of, of uh, the way they think and talk about God's name in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in other rabbinical writings, when they come to the name of God, Yahweh, they're just four dashes. They don't write anything. They won't even write it uh, out of concern that they might use it in vain. Because in rabbinical teaching, one of the sins that can never be forgiven is to use God's name in vain. Can't be, if, if you do it, you're done. Can't be forgiven. Because it's to misuse the Hashem, the name. It's interesting that Jesus comes with this high and elevated understanding of God. And we're going to look at this here in a bit. He comes and brings it to the name Father, Patera. This would be a word that would be used by children like that. But there's a further furtherance of this. We'll look at a passage where Jesus even uses and refers to the name Abba. That is the name a baby would use for their daddy. It is translated in English, Dada. That's how familiar it is. From this to this. It is the word dada, and that familiar. So it's, it's, it's a big change. Other one, I don't know if you know this or not, but in, in Islam, there are 99 names for God. I never have figured out why they didn't go to 100. <laughs> I, honestly, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, there, I'm sure there's some reason. But in all of the names of Allah, there is not one name, Father. There is no understanding of Allah as Father. I have a friend that served in the Middle East uh, for many years and discussed this notion. He said, Cliff, there is no understanding of God as Father. None whatsoever. We've been Christians too long. Hinduism. Um, there's one God, but there are 33 divas. That's not like ladies. <laughs> it's divas or D-E-V-A-S. These are mundane manifestations of God, 33 of them, and they've morphed, some scholars say, into 330 million. So um, I'm not sure what to make of that. I got an idea, but I dare not say it. But <laughs> here we go. That, uh, that uh, there's no word for father at all. So look here at Jesus. Jesus and his view of God. Jesus reveals that this God is a father. Uses the term over and over and over again. Uh, a, a, a great, if you're interested, name is Joachim Jeremias. It's J-E-R-E-M-I-A-S. Joachim Jeremias made this observation, a great uh, German scholar who said, the unique contribution that Jesus made to the understanding of Judaism or any the world is that God is a father. That's the unique contribution. Think about it. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Did the Jews pray? Sure. Uh, Jesus uh, 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 came and they uh, talked about his sacrifice. Did they already offer sacrifice? I mean, all of these things are present. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's the fulfillment of it all. But all of that's present. The unique contribution is God as Father. Now, let me give you some evidence for that. In a couple of places in the New Testament specifically, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some have suggested it's the greatest sermon, the greatest uh, speech, the greatest teaching ever. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus refers uh, to the Father or the Father 17 times. Nothing in that sermon occurs that many times. S 17 times, over and over again. In John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, which is the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus refers to his father 51 times. 51. Go through and count them. Some say 49, others will go 51. But 51 times Jesus refers to God as father, father, father. This is, if you will, uh, uh, unknown in terms of referring to or addressing or relating to God. 
So, so the idea of father is that Jesus is bringing this understanding to a bunch of people. Now, our, part of our problem is we've been Christians too long. So we just assume that. We just, we just know that because that's how we kind of grew up. It's kind of like trying to explain to a fish what water is. You know, they're not going to get it. Of course, you couldn't talk to a fish anyway, but anyway. Let's talk. Um, but, but, but the idea that we've been Christians too long. Let me think with me just for a moment. If God, and we sing that sometimes, is a good, good father, it's who you are. It's who you are. You're a good, good father. Tell me now, just shout it out here. What are some of the characteristics of a good father? Huh? Compassion. Yeah, what else, huh? What? Patient. Love. What? Protection. Provider. What else? Yeah, huh? He knows us. Yeah. Unconditional love. Guidance. You know, my dad. When I think of my dad, all of those kind of things. Now, now stop here just for a second because I want to say something. Um, when we talk about God as Father, let's not assume that everybody's had a good father. Okay? Just, just hold on here just for a second. Whatever a good father is, God is to the 22nd power. <laughs> but sometimes we need to stop just want to say, because psychologists tell us that the person who has the most impact on our view of God is our earthly father. It, it, it doesn't mean they're, you know, trying to be bad, or, but, but that's the person that probably has the most impact on our view. And sometimes it's, I think it's helpful to just stop and say, look, we're not, I'm not trying to blame anybody. You know, I talked to you about my dad and some of the things I think affected me. But he didn't. Do, he wasn't trying to hurt me. I don't think. But you know, uh, I could have. Yeah. They, they, they're trying to the best they can, but their influence, their role, becomes so powerful that it begins to inform and mold our view of God. And I just want to say to you this: as, as much as this is true, and as much as that Jesus came to real, reveal a Father, some of us may have to do some work to be able to. To, to, to be able to kind of dig down there and find, okay, where is it that maybe my view of my father has gotten pressed up? Now, Freud said this. He, he said that all God is is the projection of your father, just the projection of him with a louder voice. And, and, and the idea that God, as a good father, some of us, maybe many of us, would say, I'm not sure what that looks like. I think I told you about my buddy. I talked to him one time and said to him, his name was uh, uh, Bernard, but we called him Barney. And I said, Barney, tell me a little bit about your view of God. And he goes, well, I don't have one. I said, well, that's not possible, but just tell me. what." So when I think of God, it's just blank. I said, well, tell me a little bit about your life. And he said, well, I have a, bro have a brother and two sisters and my mom. And, and uh, I said, what about your dad? Oh, he left us when I was two. Oh, there it is. There's the big gap. The big gap to say, not there. I've talked to people. I laughed about my dad. You know, there are fathers. We're not trying to beat up. Them, we're trying to understand that maybe how they've affected us is that they were physically present and emotionally absent. I think I could have stolen my dad's car when gun smoke was on. <laughs> it's the one show he liked to watch. And I'd say to him, hey, Dad, I need the car key. Uh-huh. Hey, Dad, the house is on fire. Okay. <laughs> you know. Now, he wasn't like that all the time, but I'm telling you, during Gunsmoke, he was physical there and emotionally absent. You know, we, we could have just uh, done about anything we wanted to. But, but, but this notion, this idea, that, that my view of God. Now, so I, I know I want to get to, I've given you some scripture, but I want you to go to your table of contents and find the book of Romans. You knew we'd get there eventually into Romans <laughs> 1070. Go to the 8th chapter. I want us to look here just a second about this idea of what Jesus revealed and how Paul helps us to sort of understand this. This idea. This, this notion. In, in Romans 8, Paul is writing now about the new life in Christ. It's life in the Spirit. Uh, chapter 8 really, really goes after that. That's the new kind of life. Chapter 7 is, that's the way the, it used to be life under the law. That's what life under the law looks like, Romans 7. Now, now life in the Spirit is chapter 8. It says this in verse 14. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry, Abba, Father. Now now notice here Jesus' view that Paul picks up on about Father. When he says, there's something, you can put this in your notes this way, there's something you haven't received. What is it? Huh? Spirit of fear. Look at that. There's, there's an interesting word though. There's, there's another word right there. A spirit of fear what? Again. Do you see that there? Again. Now wait a minute. See the idea here is you've not received the spirit of fear a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Now, Paul's writing to followers of Jesus who've learned or come to understand that God is their father. It must mean that before they came to this faith in Jesus, they lived in fear. Because he says, the spirit you have does not take you back to that again. Think of it. Yeah, living under the law brings fear because we've broken it. We've violated it. Yeah. He says that you did not receive this. You did not receive a spirit of fear. Now, here's interesting, uh, this idea, because slavery in the ancient world didn't have anything to do with ethnicity. It had everything to do with you got conquered. When When the Romans conquered Germany, they became slaves. And they lived in absolute fear because the Romans and the Persians or any country that that captured them. And Paul is saying, you you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fear again. How does a a slave maintain their status? Work, (laughs) right? If you're a slave, if you're an indentured servant to someone who's conquered your country, your value is based in what? What you can produce, okay? And Paul's saying, you didn't receive that spirit that says your status or your value is what you can produce. But you received the spirit of what? Adoption. Sonship. Where you cry, Abba, Father. This is the idea that the spirit, that you're, this would be an important question to ask yourself. What spirit is there in there running around in you? Do you live by fear? Do, do, you, do you live by that my value to God or is measured in what I can produce? You got the spirit of the slave. If your value, if your position with God is based on performance and production and what you can do, I had that spirit for a long time. It took me a long, long time in my life, and I still battle with it at times. That if I do well, I feel close to God. And if I do poorly, I feel far. That's the spirit of the slave. You're going to earn your keep. You're going to have to produce to be in right status. And I can't tell you the number of Christians I've met, the number of people I meet. This is the way they've lived. I've lived this way. It's miserable. You never can settle down. You can never relax. You can never enjoy life because every, listen, a friend, I said this is every compliment becomes another standard measure you got to reach up to. Every compliment, you got to hit it again. You've received the spirit of adoption where we cry, Abba, Father. You know, adoption was something that the father, there's a Latin term they use, but when kids were adopted, they didn't say, hey, adopt me, adopt me. You know, it was the father of the family that decided. It was a long, drawn-out process where all the debts and all the responsibilities of the adopted child would be 
erased because of the new father. John Wesley commented on this one time when he made this famous statement, I think, that there are two types of Christians. There are, types of, there are Christians who have the spirit of the slave. They're Christians, but they live by the sweat of their spiritual brow. And there are those who have the spirit of the Son, who live in the security and the joy of belonging. See, some of us, I've talked about this a little bit. I'm still doing some research on this. Some of us, I think, have the spirit of the orphan. That's in us. We've got the spirit of the orphan. I don't really belong. I'm not really good enough. I don't really fit. I'm an, I'm, I don't really belong to this family. And that spirit of the orphan constantly tells you, you're not good enough. I'm just, I'm just fascinated here by this, that Paul says, based on Jesus, you got the wrong spirit here, buddy. You didn't receive that one. You may have got it from your church. You may have got it from your family. You may have gotten it from this culture. But you did not receive that word there, lambano, means to take it up. You didn't take this, you didn't receive this from God. So you need to confront it. You need to confront it and say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not the spirit I received from God. I may have got it from my family, may have got it from my church, may have got it from my own crazy thinking. That's not the one because I do not have a position with God based on my performance. The spirit of the slave. The spirit of the son. This is what Jesus came to reveal. As a son or as a daughter, <clears throat> we can cry out, Abba, Father. I told you when I was in seminary, <clears throat> I was trying to work through this, and I sensed the Lord <clears throat> or the Spirit bump me a little and say, for the next 30 days, I want you to pray Abba, but I want you to translate it. I thought, this is kind of... <laughs> I want you to pray daddy for a month every time you pray and I, I mean I'm in this little chapel room at Asbury by myself and I go okay look I never called my own father daddy you know until I was 10 I thought his first name was sir <laughs> I never called my own dad daddy I, you know I just didn't that wasn't Part of our family structure wasn't me. It just no, you know. And I remember I felt like Abraham, you know. If you can find fifty righteous offspring, so how about forty? <laughs> and I said, well, hey, uh, how about? I did. I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm I'm bargaining with him. I, I don't. Th I said, look. I mean, I this is tearing me up. I I don't think I can say, Daddy. I don't think I can do that but I can say dad. And for 30 days, I corrected my prayer life every day. I would start like this. And I'm talking about my devotion. Dear dad. Dear Heavenly Father, I had all kinds of, you know, Heavenly Father, Lord, you know. Dad. See, this is not Irreligious. It isn't superficial. It's trying to dial in to say, I didn't receive that spirit over there. That one that makes me afraid and makes me wonder if I've measured up. I've received the spirit somewhere in here. God has promised that I can call you dad. This week, you ought to try this. You ought to confront that spirit that makes you afraid that makes you keep trying to measure up, that makes you keep trying to think you can earn. I mean, if you stop and think about it, realize, you do know there's not, you couldn't do enough to earn your right with, 
relationship with God if you had 10,000 lives? What if this week you said, I'm going to confront that. Spirit. Here's how I'm going to do it. When I pray privately, I'm not, you don't have to do this out loud. I'm going to call him dad. I'm going to call him dad. I'm going to confront that spirit that keeps racking me upside the head that I'm not good enough, had done enough. Now, I want to end with a story. It's a story that Jesus told about the Father. I don't have a lot of time, but I got some pictures I want you to see. When I saw a couple of these pictures the other day, I just stopped. Because this can all be academic and it can all be in our head. You, you know the story. <clears throat> it's called the prodigal son. There was this guy, two boys. One decided, I want to leave. I want my money. I'm gone. He lives in a pig pen, blah, blah, blah. You know the story. Not blah, blah, blah. You don't talk about the Bible like that. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> um, he gets in the pig pen. He, his, his dad lets him go. Tim Keller's called this, but Tim stole this from David or uh, from uh, Lloyd Ogilvy in the 70s. Really should be the prodigal God because prodigal means excessive. Prod prodigal means excessive. It means wasteful. His father's wasteful. So he gives that kid the money, he goes, he lives. And the kid comes to himself and, and uh, remembers. The, the language is really important there. He said, how many of my father's servants have enough to eat? But, but that's, that's a, an interesting word there. It's the Greek word mystheo. You see, in the ancient world, there were people and sons and people lived on the land. And then there were slaves that had either been captured or they had sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't pay their bills. These are slaves that live on the property. Right? That's why in this story, he tells the slave, go get the robe, go get the robe. That's a guy or gal. They live on the property. This son doesn't understand his dad. And he thinks, if I go back, how many of my fathers served? The Greek word mystio means this, day laborer. That's what the word means. Remember the parable where Jesus said a guy went to town in the morning at 6 o'clock and said, come on, go work with me. And then he went back at 9 and guys are still hanging out. Go work with me. And he went back at noon. That's the word, mystio. He has no he has no confidence. He'd be a son. He'd have any confidence. He can be a slave. His only thought is I might get hired on certain days when dad needs somebody. That's all he hopes for. I'm going to have to earn every day. And there will be days when he doesn't need me. I won't work. And a day laborer, we have some of those people in our culture right now, they live day to day to buy food. That's the word he uses. It's translated servant, but it's, 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 it's day. It's hired help. It's day laborer. And so the story goes that he, uh, he comes into himself, or he actually comes to himself. How many of my father's hired servants Mistheo have bread enough. And here I am starving to death. And the Bible tells us this. The father sees him. He must have been looking. Because it says when he's a long way away, he sees him. Now Jesus is talking to a bunch of people who gotten upset because he accepts sinners and people in his life, and he's telling this story about, this is what this father's like. You guys got it all wrong. And the Bible says that he, he sees when he's a long way off. It, you know, you got family, you know, you can tell the way somebody, the, the kind of the gait, the halt, the way they walk. This kid's probably in really tough shape. And he sees him. This is the picture that I have on my, my phone now. I want it to just be emblazoned on your brain. And he runs.
In that ancient world, men of maturity, of stature, never run. In fact, the rabbis teach, this is some crazy stuff, that it was a sin for your ankle to be seen as a mature man of respect. He runs to him. Uh, it's on my phone now. Every day when I open it up, I see this guy. You see the uh, intensity? You guys that are dads, you know, if you had a kid that was uh, coming home, you'd be hitting the bricks. This is so un unusual, too, because uh, Carl Madeiras told this story in Dubai one time while he was on television. And a guy asked him a question about Jesus, and Carl just decided, I'll just tell the parable of the prodigal son. And Carl tells the story how that when, when it comes, because this is a shame-honor society. Shame-honor society. This kid has shamed this family. And the guy is behind the camera while Carl's telling the story, and he said, and the father begins to run. And the guy goes out, looks, and goes. Because in that culture, you know what that guy thinks? He's running to kill him. You've dishonored the family. What would be normal is the father would run to kill him. And the guy goes. And then Madeiras says. And he embraces him. And the guy then does this. <laughs> Carl says the most fascinating thing ever happened. He said, and the guy goes. Why? This guy running to save him from others in the family is the meaning of the story. This is a Rembrandt. So I, I, I like this. If you ever notice this picture, one of the hands on the father is big. It looks like a father's hand. And the other one is very delicate. It's a female hand. Rembrandt, when he, when he, drew, when he, when he painted this, he wanted both of these characters of father of strength. That's a, this hand here and a very delicate hand here. It says he runs, he embraces him, he kisses him. This is the picture I like. And he says, give him the best robe. You, you know whose robe that might be? His dad's. The, the best robe is likely either his dad's or one they kept there for honored guests. Either way, this kid's being welcomed home. No recrimination. I love, if you, and you go read it, he's got this speech all figured out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer being called the son. And you know what? He never gets a response from the father. The father never said, you know, you're right. I'm glad you recognize what you did. I think it's important for you to recognize your error. None of that. First thing comes out, find the best robe. That is the father's robe. Uh, give him a ring. That's a sign he's part of the family. And put sandals on his feet. Only slaves were, were barefoot. Now he has the position now, no longer of a slave. This is the picture that Jesus said. When he talks about father, that's important. We've talked about what the word means. But, but more, than, more than that important is to have a picture of God's love in our brain. And I really want this. I'm not, I, as I wrote in, in my stuff, I said, I, I, it's not enough for me just to talk about Pater and Ab and like that. There's got to be a picture. This is, in my judgment, what you need to see. When Jesus came to talk about a father, he talked about a father who would get up and run to you. Now, here's the question. What are you running from? That God wants to run to. What are you running from? Are you, you saying, I don't want to deal with this. I want to avoid it. It's too painful. I, I think it's bad. What, what are you running from? That God is actually running to. He's coming at you. He wants to run to you. He wants to be there with you. To embrace us. To me, I, I spent some of my life... At times when I felt like I'd failed or done something wrong, I literally was running from God. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to read because I thought, well, I'm just going to get, he's just going to whack me. 
Nobody's going to respond to a God that they think because they fail that they're going to get whacked. But this is the God who runs to us. Is this the way you see God? When I say see, I mean, I'm talking about this. Is this the way you see him when you say, I got a problem. I got a need. I've got a failure. So I just, I just want to ask you this week, maybe, if you would, to be willing to say to God, I'm going to let you run to me. I'm going to let you run to me. I'm going to believe that you're coming to me. And I don't have to avoid you or fight or run away. But you're going to run to me. Or second, maybe again, we've, I've already said this, but would you this week in your prayer life change your language? To say, I've not received this spirit of fear, but I've received the spirit of adoption. And in your prayer life, you conscious, you'll have to do this consciously. Call God, Dad. Now, if you can, come talk to me. If you can call him Daddy. That's what this word means. It says you've received the spirit of adoption where you cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. This could change the way we relate to God by the way we understand he relates to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to know in our heart and soul that you really are a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. Help those words as we sing them sometimes in church or as we remember them during the week, as we change the way we pray, this week as we allow you to run toward us that that truth that you came Jesus this unique truth you came to bring us would go deep in our souls we pray this not just for our sake but so that we can live a life of joy to tell others of this good good father who runs to us not from us we pray it in Jesus strong name amen